Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Hey everyone, today we have husband and wife, Nathan Fur and Susanna Harmon Fur, who are the best-selling authors of a book titled The Upside of Uncertainty, a guide to finding possibility in the unknown. And wow, talk about timeliness. Um, we need a book like this. There is more uncertainty in the world more than ever. And you actually have, you talk about a world uncertainty index, which we're going to get into. And so I'm going to start from the beginning. Your husband and wife, you know, your researcher, your researcher and entrepreneur, vastly different fields. Why the fascination with uncertainty, which ultimately led to this book? Yeah, I mean, it really started well over a decade ago. Um, a lot of what I do is I interview innovators uh, to understand, like, how do you get ideas and how do you test ideas? But one thing that uh, struck me in that process was to do anything new, to do one of these cool new things, they always had to go through uncertainty first. And I struggle with it. And so I was really curious about what could I learn from them that uh, I, that would help me? Because obviously I want to get to new possibilities and new things, but but how? Whereas Susanna, I think was, it, it, I'll let her speak for herself, but she, uh, one thing, the things I admire about her, she is, she is somebody who is willing to walk through uncertainty, has a lot of wisdom. Uh, she's the innovator and the entrepreneur between us. So I'm kind of like the nerd who's scared of it, who studies it. And she's kind of like the intuitively wise, but also experienced person who does it well. Yeah. And I would just add that the reason why we decided to write it together is because in our lives, we've navigated by our own choice sometimes or mostly tons of uncertainty. We we left our religion that we both grew up in. So that was a really scary thing because the minute you do that, you're kind of floating. And we had four kids. So we're like, shoot, we'd raise them up in this thing. What do we do now? Um, as, as a couple that grew up in that really intense religion, it was like, it was very patriarchal. So he was in charge of like, I'm going to be out in the, in, so I was an entrepreneur and I did stuff, but it was always on the side as kind of the sidekick. Like I'm the mom first, but then I get to do these other cool stuff if I slip it in. So tons of uncertainty to go, wait a second. We actually feel more at home in Europe. So should we move there? We tried it a ton of times first, but anyway, so we've just done a lot of risks, but they were often, I guess we would say in our book, risk is when you know the outcomes. You just don't know what's going to happen. It's like rolling dice. But uncertainty is like, shoot, we really want to do this. But what if our kids hate the schools? And what if, you know, we don't make enough money? And what if we have to move back with our tail between our legs? Or what if we all go off the rails because we don't go to church anymore? I mean, lots of lots of stress, right? So that's why I love this topic is because we've had stressful, scary times, but we always find a way to get to the thing we want. And sometimes the thing we want ends up being different than we thought. And you mentioned leaving a church. And before the show, you said you lived in Utah. So my guess is the church was, you left the Mormon church. Mm-hmm. Got it. And in terms of uncertainty, as I mentioned on the show, uh, excuse me, prior, we live in such an uncertain time. And I'm, I'm reading your book and I'm like, wow, we can actually measure this. There's a world uncertainty index. Did not know that was a thing, which of course recently was at an all-time high. And so at the highest level, we're all touched by uncertainty right now. Uh, and by the week, it, it, it feels like it's getting worse. And in the book, I thought it was so interesting the way you framed this up. You have four critical components 
to help us embrace uncertainty. Because the way I look, you know, uncertainty is not going away. Um, so, so how can we get better? How can we embrace uncertainty? Can you walk us through these four critical components? Sure. So we we um, situate those components around what we call the first aid uncertainty cross or the red cross for uncertainty. And basically it's on the north and south axes, you've got reframe and sustain. And those are both cognitive tools. It's more kind of framing how you're going to do something. And on the west and east arms of the cross, you've got prime and do. So reframing is really just this light switch flipping from, I hate uncertainty, it's terrifying, I don't know how it's going to go, to, whoa, uncertainty is the portal to possibility. It's just one side of the coin. There's no awesome possibility without first not being sure about how it's going to go. So that's reframing. Priming is preparing yourself. And these innovators and, and other cool change makers that we interviewed, it's very clear they, they know who they are. So they take on the uncertainty that they either feel more um, comfortable with or excited about. So there's lots of priming tools, though, to kind of get yourself ready for uncertainty, even the ones you don't know that are coming. Uncertainty balancers is one of our favorites. It's where you kind of create rituals and routines that help you feel comfortable while you're doing uncertain stuff. Um, do you want to talk about do? Yeah, and so um, <clears throat> the do is uh, the second of the kind of action. So it's the third of the tools, excuse me. So it's reframe, prime, and do. And do is really drawn a lot from the research in innovation and entrepreneurship. There are certain ways we can take action under the unknown that kind of lead to better outcomes. So for example, rather than trying to take on a big project all at once as one big piece, you kind of proverbial eating the elephant one bite, breaking it down into small experiments and small steps. And then the fourth tool is really, the fourth category of tools is sustain, which is this acknowledgement that we all feel anxiety. We are wired to feel anxiety under uncertainty. That's normal. Uh, now let's, how do we deal with that emotion? How do we appropriately uh, you know, use the emotional hygiene that so that we don't beat ourselves up, and instead we see new possibilities and we can you know deal with setbacks and challenges appropriately. And and so uh, for me, I'm a believer. It's very hard to just turn things on or get good at something overnight. You got to put in the work. Whether it's you know if you want if you want to build muscles, you got to go to the gym. If you want to be more mindful, be be a better manager of your stress. You got to start meditating or using a mindfulness practice every day. It just doesn't happen overnight. So with regards to uncertainty, what are some of the things people can do in their day-to-day -to, -day to help prepare them so they are better equipped when uncertainty comes into play and there are varying degrees of uncertainty? They're, they're just in a better position to try to manage it and come out on the other side. Yeah. So if we think about ways to prepare, so I agree with you that we talk about this idea of uncertainty ability, that we can learn to deal with uncertainty. And that's like a positive thing, right? Because a lot of us are feeling super anxious. And, and for me, these tools are like a yes and. On the one hand, there are, there are things we can do that help us feel calm like immediately or very quickly, let's put it that way. And on the other hand, there are tools that we do develop over time. And all of it is an ability that we develop over time and that the innovators we studied and even in our own lives, we've seen as we practice this, we're actually far calmer under uncertainty and better able to, to take 
to take new risks. But if you think about how do I prepare for this, what's this practice? Susanna, number one, mentioned uncertainty balancers, which one of the funny things about these innovators is they'll say things like, I love uncertainty. I eat uncertainty for breakfast or all this crazy stuff. And you're like, whoa, that's not me. But when you dig in and you really drill down under the surface, they're doing some really uh, some things that create a lot of stability in their lives. So like, for example, Paul Smith, who is like this very flamboyant, colorful designer, would stay in the same hotel in the same room whenever he traveled, or they carried their breakfast with them, or they have these communities they build up to help them feel calm. And, and so it, it, I think the lesson we take from that is nobody has an infinite capacity for uncertainty. And so the way that a lot of these innovators create room to do new things is they say, well, how do I create stability in some other part of my life? So yeah, that, that falls under the prime category, but I think the most critical on a daily basis is to reframe that uncertainty is always going to feel gross. It's always going to feel weird. It's always going to be this moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's going to be this moment of like, dang, I don't know if I want to do this or I don't know if I can do this. And so I think one of the cooler tools is this idea of having an uncertainty manifesto. And it's a personal thing that you create, but it's, it could be just a little two phrase thing that talks about what you think about uncertainty. And, and, the, and what we talk about in, in the discussion of that little mini chapter is if you think of a grid, like a two by two grid in life, there's, there's ways of seeing the world as in our control or outside of our control. So, and then the other, I'm forgetting what the other matrix is. About, is. So do you see your, your the goal of life oh, yeah. as kind of some external objective, like I'm number one or I'm the highest paid or I win all the awards, or is it more an internal objective around like growth and learning? And, and listen, we all vacillate between this, you know, you know, pursuing external object objectives versus internal objectives and between our ability to see the world as kind of in our control or outside our control. But one of the kind of secrets of navigating life well is to realize that actually a lot of times, especially under uncertainty, it, it's actually not really in your control uh, what's going to happen. And like, if you just kind of let go of that and just say, my goal is to do my best work in the best way possible in a way that I feel good about you can actually have a lot more calm walking into the uncertainty. And some of the kind of the innovators we respected the most were very clear about that and very clear about their realization that I don't control it all. I'm going to go in, I'm going to do my best work and see what happens. But that often kind of counterintuitively leads to better outcomes and like, let me force it. Let me through great mental power, like think through all the variables and control it. Like it just, it just can't happen under uncertainty. Fascinating. And I'm curious, how do you think about nature versus nurture? Yeah. So it's an interesting debate. So I uh, did a lot of work with a, a well-known applied uh, neuroscientist. And what he argued is what the science suggests is that everything in life is a function of genes, experience, and learning. And so as we think about uncertainty ability, let's face it, all of us come to the world with some kind of latent capacity. But the world, the research is very clear that we also learn to face uncertainty. There are whole cultures that are better at facing uncertainty. Uh, and so it's like, to me, nature versus nurture is that you have, we all have a rubber band and we can stretch it. And so, and why do we want to stretch it? Because 
here's the paradox of uncertainty. Our whole lives, we're kind of taught that we should create a stable, reliable life that, and everything, and we, and we, even if we don't realize it, we crave uncertainty. We try to lock things down. But we, what we don't realize is that when everything is locked down, when everything is stable, it actually will become immensely boring. There's nothing new. And, and people even pay. They pay to get new. And I was with the head of a major uh, gambling organization. And they, they basically said, like, our business is reverse insurance. People are paying us so that something new could happen in their lives. And so we forget that aspect that when we try to make everything certain, our lives become boring and that actually uncertainty is how cool new things happen. So it's it's really about like building up that ability because then more new things can happen in our lives, more new insights, more connections, more learning, more opportunities. And, and I think that's one of the things we learned. Susanna talked about how we've taken a lot of risks and we look back and say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad we took all those risks. And, you know, in terms of, I, I agree, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I, I, I thrive in uncertainty. And I often think for me, it's, it's a little bit of, you know, as I think about nature and nurture, you know, when I was 19, my father suddenly dropped out of a heart attack, you know, out of nowhere, boom. It, Thank you, but all good. It's all good. Um, but I think about that event, obviously, it had a prof profound impact for various reasons. But I as I think about uncertainty, then I also became an equities trader on, on Wall Street out of college. And I think of like tolerance, risk, uncertainty. Uh, I go back to that event, losing my father, you know, someone's here, you think about uncertainty. It's like, okay, as a kid losing your child, and I think Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this, a kid losing your child, losing, sorry, losing a child is horrific. I'm not going to go there. As a kid, losing your parent is devastating, but you get through it. You come out on the other side. And for me, it was like, all right, this is the worst thing that kind of happened. One, it, it to reinforce, you know, I'm really not in control to some degree. I can control what I want to control or can control, but the reality is we don't really control anything. And if the worst thing I could possibly, you know, imagine happened, you know what? Not so bad. Um, what else do you have? Um, and I think that experience and then building those muscles as an equity with the markets and becoming a trader for a while strengthened my muscles, my uncertainty muscles, if you will, that allowed me to eventually become an entrepreneur. And it took, it was a process an entrepreneur, part of various projects that failed. So I saw failure. So I'm like, all right, you know, this failed, this sucked. You know, one, one, at one point I had to move back into my, you know, mother, mother's house. And I'm like, all right, this is kind of humiliating and terrible, but I'm doing it. So it's like, all right, now I, I kind of experience shapes my ability and threshold for uncertainty. Um, and so where I'm going with that is for, for some people, they've had experiences that I think just lend themselves to like, you know, you build the muscle over time and over time. And other people through life experience just don't have the muscles for very, nothing against them, just things didn't happen. It was kind of... <laughs> And so I'm curious, Susanna, what you think as an entrepreneur and you having, it seems like a higher threshold for uncertainty, like what, what shaped you and your experience and kind of getting to where you, where you are and your views and, and building your uncertainty muscles? 
Yeah, I have to argue for me, I was kind of one of those people that had kind of had the charmed childhood. I was the fourth of eight kids, really cozy upbringing. My mom was one of those moms that like on a snow day, you'd come home with hot chocolate and popcorn. Like it was kind of idyllic. And so I didn't get those. I didn't really ever have one of those moments of like, oh my gosh, like the world is different than I thought. So I would just say that I really love and am drawn to underdogs that are kind of shaping things and finding meaning in industry. So my entrepreneurship title, it's true. I I claim it. I'm thrilled, but I'm always looking for the thing that is that is so much more attached to meaning. So I I'm I can't say I had some great exit or I've I've made um why what? don't you talk about founding your clothing line? Like that was an interesting moment. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Just this but I but I wanna I want to really address like what made me feel like I could do those thresholds. I'm not really sure it doesn't totally make sense for me because I did have in, if anything maybe too much of an umbrella that was protecting me and all of my 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 viewpoints about the world. And I, I, I really do just think I'm so drawn to mindfulness. I learned about Buddhism. I started really thinking about like, why are men in charge of everything? So I'm definitely a feminist. So my, my hunt for anything and growth is always shaped by like, what makes sense to me? And then I'm going to go after it, seek after that thing. So I'm actually really interested right now in in biodynamic and biointensive gardening. And I'm starting what I call a hope accelerator in Normandy. I want it to be a place where people can come and learn about, you know, agriculture and the way the soil. So I'm doing a whole I'm always looking for things that can help this world that I feel is pretty broken. Um, But my my clothing line. So that was my first really big entrepreneurial thing. And it really stemmed out of my research. I did an art history master's and um, even in that zone, I, I was studying the Dutch Baroque artists. So people will know like Vermeer and Franz Hals that he's not as famous, but Vermeer is a big one. And I figured out that women were embroidering their outfits in places only they knew about. And that just made me so happy. Like the wearer. And these women were like working really hard. Their their husbands were fishermen and would leave. They had to like defend the island, but they were taking time to do this gorgeous, elaborate embroidery, often in places only they would see. And I was like, oh my gosh, mindful clothing, like clothing that makes the wearer happy. And so that's what my, my clothing line was based on. Um, I started it when we were, at, Nathan was at Stanford. It was that feeling of, you know, all those cool startups. It was early 2000s. Um, then I decided to stop that because I, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not looking in my kids' eyeballs enough during the day. Like I'm going from crib to preschool to like, here's your snack, stroller. So again, um, I love uncertainty because I do believe it will get us places, but I, this is one of the things I want to mention really quickly is our book really argues for something beyond resilience. So sometimes this right now in, in the, in the, in the arena, yeah, the environment, we talk so much about like, you know, withstanding, like being able to take a punch and be strong. And we love Nassim Taleb's work um, about anti-fragile, but our book is really about how do you, um, become transilient. And the, the definition of that is leaping from one state to another. And it's beyond resilience because if you think about it, sometimes when we're doing something that's uncertain even or certain, sometimes we need to let go of that thing and shift to something entirely different. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in encouraging people who maybe have like fantastic careers or making tons of money, but they're still just like 
feeling crap. They're feeling bummed. They're not feeling inspired. How do you figure out when something's worth doing? You know, to me, that's what's exciting about uncertainty. So that was a really circuitous answer, but. No, it's a great answer. And I think it brings up a larger point. You're hitting on purpose. And, you know, when I think of the mental health epidemic, I think of how many people are unhappy in their careers and their relationships. Um, and I, purpose doesn't solve for everything, but it, it solves for a lot. You know, we've talked about the blue zones here extensively. You know, we talk about their diet and so forth, but purpose, 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 purpose. People who live the longest, longest and the healthiest, they all have tremendous purpose. And so when I think of, you know, th th you can find, I think, purpose and certainty to some degree, but I, I think a lot of the beauty does lie in uncertainty with purpose and, 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 and I, I would, you know, I think you're hitting on this larger point that too much certainty is unhealthy. That's what you mentioned gambling. When I think of pe people who, when I, when I think of all the problems people run into, you know, the midlife crisis, I'm just going to, you know, just blanket into the midlife crisis, too much certainty. And, and, you know, and, and specifically us, the guys, the men suffer from this too much. They're in their fifties. They start doing stupid things, buying expensive cars, having affairs, just whatever. Too much certainty, right? Right. And certainty that like what they're doing is all it is. And it's lame. It's not feeding them. It's not nurturing them. You know, I, I wanted to touch on this purpose piece though, because it made me think of one of the most kind of uh, unusual tools in the section about doing or taking action under uncertainty. And, and we actually call it values over goals. And it's kind of, to me, the a strange and counterintuitive formula for how you can go do something unknown and kind of guarantee success. And, and I think it's well illustrated by an interview we did with an entrepreneur uh, David Hanmeyer Hansen. He did Ruby on Rails. He did Basecamp. He did you know six other startups. He's like a legend in the entrepreneurial world. And when you talk to him, he basically is pretty blunt. And he says, "Listen, when you do something new, uh, whether it's start a business or change your career or change geography, like whatever you were hoping would happen does not happen because you set a goal." So he speaks to entrepreneurs and says, "Just because you set a goal for eight million, he said, is total BS. Like that's not." going to happen because you set a goal. He said, a goal might help you get direction. What he really encouraged is saying, how do I act according to my values? And, and his values are write good software, treat my people well, and be ethical in my interactions with the market. And he said, you know, he just launched a big product that had cost, you know, a lot of money to develop. And he said, you know, whether this product succeeds or not in the marketplace, I ultimately like don't control, but I do control my values and, and I will walk away, whatever happens, feeling great about this because I wrote good software and I treated my people well and I acted ethically. And I think going back to your, when you say purpose, one thing that can really help you take action in the unknown with less anxiety is to say, how do I act according to my values? How, what's my value? And if even writing this book, for example, Again, I mentioned we started this long before the pandemic. The pandemic happens. Suddenly, everybody's talking about uncertainty. Me being the guy who gets scared, I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're going to get scooped. People are going to write about this. And Susanna's like, who cares? She's like, write the best book you can. Write the book for your friends. Write the book for the people you love about what we learned, 
about facing uncertainty. That's what the world needs. And she was saying, basically, just act according to your values and don't worry about the rest. And it was really helped me both calm down and it was the right thing to do too. You know, you talk a lot about entrepreneurs and uh, husband and wife. My wife and I are husband and wife uh, entrepreneurs. We work together though. Uh, Yeah. Um, So you talk a lot about entrepreneurs in the book and, you know, I, I think, there are a lot of variables that going going into being a successful entrepreneur, a lot of qualities, if you will. One, you got to be com- comfortable with ambiguity, uncertainty, uh, and then, you know, two, confidence. What role does confidence play? In being a successful entrepreneur or in facing uncertainty? Well, facing uncertainty. I, I do think you're talking about like, you know, whether it, it, there's the unknown, you're taking a leap of faith in many situations. Sometimes it's a leap, sometimes it's, it's a giant and we're going from Utah to Paris. We just went from Brooklyn to Miami. This is pale in comparison to what you did. It's still bold. Any move is bold. I, I'd love to take this one because I think that under the reframe category of tools, we talk about self-doubt and how it's a total realistic thing that pretty much everyone's going to feel, even the most confident, maybe even arrogant types that would never admit. Because it's, again, it's a wiring thing in our brain to just have the idea like, oh my gosh, what if I'm going to fail at this? Or what if it's not going to work? And we give two stories. One is John Steinbeck writing The Grapes of Wrath. He kept a journal while he was writing that. And every day he has diary entries where he is so like trashing himself and his ability. He, he'll he say things like, yeah, everybody thinks I'm a writer. I'm terrible. I'm totally failing in this attempt. I know this subject matter is important, but I am ruining this. And it's like crazy to read because he ended up re- winning the Nobel, Nobel Prize. Prize. Yeah. So the idea is really on, around this tool. The tool isn't self-doubt. The tool is becoming yeah. aware that you're going to have self-doubt. And we actually named it something kind of weird. It's a weird word, but it's a plum, A-P-L-O-M-B. And, you know, it comes from a plumb line, which, you know, um, is that that true straight line that it is hung to kind of give you true north, south, you know. And, and the idea is that for me, confidence, it doesn't have to mean that you are super confident. It, it means that you're going to follow the true essence of who you are. So even a first time person doing something, how, cause otherwise, how could you have confidence when you're just starting out? But if you have confidence in yourself as you are in that moment and not trying to make stuff up or fake people out, you actually will grow your confidence. Does that make sense? So, so um, yeah. yeah, I've, I've had this, I've had to do this with joining Nathan because he's written four books before this three of them with Harvard. I, I'm totally out of my league, not talking to groups like your listeners. I love, that's my place. That's what I love. I listen to those kind of things. I feel comfortable there. But in the business world, you know, I've been up on stage with these executive types of things and it could be really scary for me, but I keep reminding myself, and this is what I would encourage anyone to do. I just remember, oh, wait, I just have to be me because I I do feel um, qualified to talk about this. I mean, I did all this research. I've read all this stuff. I've written this book with Nathan. I feel qualified, but I'm so out of my league. And so the way I go into it and have confidence is just, oh, I just remember I'm just going to be me. I'm not going to try to be Nathan in me or some other person. I'm not going to overpromise. I'm not going to oversell. Just be you. Does that make sense? And then you can be confident whatever you do. 
It, it does. And I also thought something was interesting as a, as a, as a tool potentially for confidence. Uh, and I think there, it, it, to me, it's rooted in spiritual principles, no matter what spirituality or religion you subscribe to. And you talk about this book, living as if, can you talk about, and you say in the book, the psychology has a lot to say about living as if, so, you know, bring a little science to, you know, a woo woo topic, if you will. Yeah. Go ahead. So um, I'm so glad you brought that up. So in the sustain section, we talk about really how do you sustain yourself under uncertainty? We talk about emotional hygiene. We talk about reality check, which is this kind of just looking at things rationally and realizing it's probably not as bad as you think. But the third category we call magic, which is really acknowledging that there are leaps of insight, connections that are fortuitous things that happen that we just don't control. We don't, we cannot understand this complex universe in which we live and great things can happen. And this idea of living as if actually has some pretty deep philosophical roots in the sense that like, for example, there was this gentleman, Hans Weyringer, who wrote a whole uh, book called uh, As If, and, and he highlighted that we all live whether we recognize it or not, according to stories. So for example, we have a story of what an atom is. It helps us understand the world. It helps us take action. Nobody's seen that thing. And so whether you whether you think you live as if or not, it doesn't matter. You are living as if. But the real question is, what is the power of these stories and ways we can live as if? And I really appreciated the late philosopher Christopher Hitchens. He talked about this as a tool for political change. He talked about how uh, Vaclav Havel was, you know, his country was essentially taken over and how he wrote this book, The Power of the Powerless. He, he realized I can no longer resist, but what would happen if I lived as if I was a citizen of a free country? And he did that for years and became the first uh, president of the Czech Republic when it was finally kind of be able, able to become free. And we saw this many times in the people we saw, and even I'll say in the research and entrepreneurship, what do like great entrepreneurs do who create new industries? They imagine what the industry could be, and then they take action to create it as if it already existed. And, and this is something I, I really feel, you know, I, I just, I, I'm talking so in the abstract, I just want to make it personal. You know, back in 2010, we got lucky enough to do a visiting professor thing here in France. And we thought it would just be a little short, fun stay. But something happened to us we didn't expect. And that was, it felt like home. And we wanted to get back to France, but there was no way to do it. And so we, there was all these things that needed to happen. And, and so we did two things. Number one, we lived in the place we were as richly as we could take advantage of the fact of the good things of the place we have. But then also I'll say in my own mind, the real challenge is that the school I eventually got hired at had really high requirements. And, and I didn't know if I could re, re, reach those requirements. And so in my own mind, in my own work, I had to kind of live as if I was good enough to be at that place. Uh, and, and for me, that was a big leap. I'll be honest in 2010, when we were, we actually went to the town where my university is, and I remember feeling just so bummed and depressed. Like, they don't even know that I'm here. I'm not even on their radar. I, I'm not even close to being good enough. Fast forward to 2015, 
I have a job offer from them and we've moved to France. And so to me, I credit a lot of that interim period as living as if I was capable of doing this thing that and the things I would need to do to get here. I don't know. Yeah, I'm I love sure that. No, what I would add just for a little personal um, side note from just last week. Uh, so Nathan and I were really close friends. Actually, we met as freshmen at BYU. So met did a lot of um, scholarly stuff together. We were on a, like a research paper. So we were always these thinkers and stuff. And then, like I said in the beginning, like our, our past kind of paths kind of went into like, you diverged. know, diverge. I'm like the mom at home and you get to go do the work. And I was always really bored. So I started my clothing line and stuff, but the patriarchal nature of things still kind of has a seed. And sometimes even though we've left that behind, it still comes out sometimes. And I am currently doing the living as if, patriarchy doesn't exist in our relationship anymore. And he's being a really good, yeah, but he's really he's willing to do it. But it helps me when he's bugging me and doing stuff that feel old because I'm like, I'll just be like, oh my gosh, instead of getting like, oh, or turning kind of bugged or like passive aggressive, I'm just like, I can, it helps me just kind of like not attach to it, not take it personally. And also envision like that day when it will be so diminished that it doesn't really impact us. And it was hilarious because I was going out of town and I had told him, hey, live as if from your, from your side too, that this isn't an existing because he doesn't want to be no. a jerk. And so it was this cute moment because we went downstairs and we, we have shirts that are like matchers that are like, we never wear these shirts. And somehow we both put on the ma same matching shirt. And to me, it was this little spark from the universe of like, we're, we're both doing this as if thing. It was so cool. I, and I was going down to Italy to do this cool um, course with a master um, tapestry weaver. And there we were in these matching shirts and kind of diverging. And I was getting to do something really cool and he was going to be at home with kids. And you know, it works. Cause as if helps you rise above the tit for tat, like, but you're da, 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 da. all of a sudden you're like, no, we're not doing this anymore. And you can just kind of detach. It's really, it really does work. Yeah. I think it gives you some level of control and, you know, look, I think luck strikes, miracles happen, but I, I think you talk to anyone, whether it's someone who's successful or overcame, uh, you know, very difficult circumstances, there, there's work involved. And, and one of my uh, favorite quotes I probably referenced on this show before, uh, Jim Carrey, the actor, was talking about, he's he, very, very spiritual guy, he was talking about the power of manifestation. Because uh, I think there was a story where he, he famously wrote himself a check for $10 million. This is a year when he's a struggling actor and, you know, eventually that came true. But he said, with manifestation, you have to do the work. You can't just manifest something and then go sit in the couch and eat a ham sandwich. Like you, you gotta, you gotta put in, put in the work and it comes back to, you know, action. You have to take action. If you're uncertain about something, you, you don't want to just sit on the couch. And, and, and just throw your hands up and get angry. I don't know what to do. You know, take take action. You know, if you, if you don't know what to do, do something. Mow the lawn. Do something. <laughs> Absolutely. I actually think that's one of the coolest ideas is to really realize if you don't do anything, the uncertainty remains even more uncertain for you because other people are doing stuff. And so they'll shift it and change you, what you can do but you won't have had any say in what's going on because you're not doing anything. 
You, you know, it's funny. I, uncertainty, I like taking action is definitely the best way to resolve uncertainty. And, and kind of going back to this personal experience when 2010, like, I'm like, you know, how far have I fallen? I'm, I'm never going to, you know, make it to this dream. I, I returned home and I would, I, I started getting up early to like make more time for the research that I needed to do and prioritizing things. But there was this really interesting interim event. And so that is like, you know, shortly thereafter, I got this call from University College London and they were kind of said, hey, we'd love to interview you for a job. And I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe this is the chance to get back over to Europe. And so we fly over and I do the whole day of interviews. And the very last interview, uh, one of a, a graduate from my program at Stanford says, let's cross the street to the cafe. And we go into this cafe and he says, are you effing insane. Like what's wrong with you? Like London is so expensive. Like you have young kids, you wouldn't be able to do the research to get, you know, the job, you know, tenure here, which is the job for life. You would publish it's publish or perish. You would perish. And then you'd be in really big trouble. Like go home, do the work and like wait until it's the right time. And, and it was really hard for me to hear, but, but one lesson I learned from that is in the journey we got to do the work, but also we got to not grab for things too early, what we call premature certainty. And so what the, the richer piece of the story I told earlier is we went home and said, you know what, let's make the absolute most of what we have now. Like we had some fam, we had family nearby. Let's truly enjoy them being here. Let's enjoy the freedom that this job I currently have gives me. Let's put my heart into it. But at the same time, let's keep taking action towards this other dream. And so we actually went back to France three more times before I got the job. And, and it sounds so dreamy, but I'm telling you, when you're like going through customs, jet lagged, hauling bags up four floors down an elevator, dealing with language you don't understand, like it's not as dreamy as it sounds on the surface. There's a lot of work in there. So it's just this duality of like patience and action will resolve the uncertainty and lead to the right thing for us. I love that. Anyone with kids who, who flies with kids understands that flying with children overseas is probably one of the worst things you could possibly do to a marriage and, and to children and to your own mental health. Uh. <laughs> right. So one of the things I love about the book, it just filled with so many great anecdotes, great research. I'm curious anything really stand out to you where you just in the process you're writing the book your jaw just dropped like i can't believe there's there's a study on this or i just can't believe that story what, what stood out to you you know my whole academic career has been about this question of uncertainty which is really this we could go on for hours about the driving factors that have increased the uncertainty in the environment around us and and, and so i've written all about these um you know, tools and techniques for dealing with that. But I think for me, the most amazing thing, and it's so simple, is really that we forget that uncertainty and possibility are really two sides of the same coin. If you think about any achievement of which you're proud, whether it's a relationship, a career move, a geography move, maybe going away to school, whatever it was, think back for a moment. There was uncertainty to get to that thing. And you had to go through that uncertainty to get to the possibility. And then, and whether we like to hear it or not, uncertainty also happens to us. It's not just what we choose, the uncertainty we choose, and there's possibility on the other side. There's uncertainty that happens to us. And, and a lot of that uncertainty is 
is inept. I, I don't want to deny the downsides. Like when your father passed away, there was undeniable pain and grief and loss. That that is there. But you also talked about how it transformed you as a person. And so, even for the uncertainty, we don't choose. Uncertainty and possibility are two sides of the same coin. And if we can remember that, I think I think we're like the first big step to living into this world. And, and I think the other thing for me, if 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 I want if I wanted people to walk away with one idea in their head, it would be to ask the question: when uncertainty happens, or when I face it, or when I setback happens, how do I turn this into a possibility? That that's the question I want to ask myself. I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm going to think about your question because I'm sure I have more favorite stories than the ones I'm thinking of. But I think one of my very favorite stories is also in that chapter about self-doubt. And it's about Richard Feynman, who's a physicist, and how his curiosity is what healed his heart and his career. And basically, he had worked at the Alamo. Los Alamos. Um, Los Alamos project. Sorry, not the Alamo. Um, you know, but just after the war had just felt so sad because also his wife, his young wife had died of tuberculosis, which was just about to be curable. She died. He'd been so burnt out and he didn't really know how he was going to do his career. And curiosity was the ticket. Just getting, letting himself be curious again. Oh, it's a better story. I know, that. but we, I don't know if you can tell it. Okay. Read really, the book. Really, Read the book. really, really, really quickly. He, he's, he's at Cornell. He, he's so burnt out, he can't do any research. And he starts getting these job offers and he feels really bad about himself because he's like, people don't realize, like, I'm a fake. I can't do research. I don't have ideas. I'm, he was literally reading Arabian Nights in the library. And, and, and finally, every offer he got made him feel really bad. Finally, he gets an offer from the Princeton Institute of Energy that has like Einstein there. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. I'm just going to give up. I have no responsibility to live up to what other people think I should do. I'm going to quit doing physics the way you're supposed to do it. And I'm going to just have fun. I don't care if somebody else has done it before. It's not important or whatever. And, and one week later, he's in the Cornell dining hall and some goofball throws a plate up in the air and the plate's spinning. And he's like, oh my gosh, the emblem at the center of this plate is spinning at a different rate than the plate is wobbling in the air. I wonder if I could calculate it. And he runs off and he calculates it and he comes back to his department chair, Hans Bethe, a Nobel Prize winner, tells him about what he did. And Hans Bethe is just like, are you crazy, Feynman? Like, who cares? And, and Feynman is like, yeah, that's right. Who cares? I'm just going to do this because I think it's interesting. I find it fun. And he said, you know, I would calculate the flow of water as it comes out of the faucet. And I was playing around. He said, but pretty soon that led to some pretty serious questions and some calculations. And then before you know it, I was doing the work that led to the Nobel Prize about the wobble of electrons in orbit. It all started with that work on the wobble of plates. And to me, that's what, you know, that, that beauty of go after uh, the things you care about in the ways you care about them, uh, you know, it's so important. It, it is. And you actually made the, made for the perfect segue to my last question, chasing your dreams. You know, some think it's a cliche. You say in the book, it's probably one of the best parenting tips one can give. Let's talk about why, why it's so critical. I'm a parent of two young girls. You guys are parents. We have listeners of parents. Talk about the power of chasing one's dream. 
Yeah, that was when we were making the decision to move to France and we didn't want to screw up our kids' lives by changing their schools. And yeah, um, my, my grandmother said, you know, parents teach their children to live their dreams by living their own dreams. Um, I guess I would answer by sharing one tool from the book. We talk about personal real options, which we actually learned from another uh, Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. And he talked about how he teaches his students uh, to have two options, because if you just have one uncertain option, you'll follow that down too far, too long. You won't be willing to say, oh, it didn't work. Let me change course. So he, he talks to people about having multiple options in their portfolio of things they're doing. And when we look at the research about more versus less successful entrepreneurs, often more successful entrepreneurs are what we call hybrid entrepreneurs, which is they did something on the side while they were starting their business. So how does this play into the question you asked? Here's the thing about personal real options. We were giving people advice. You don't have to go all in on you know, the dream. You actually want to have multiple options, multiple pathways. But the real dilemma is not that we collectively are going all in on our dreams. The real dilemma is we're going all in on the safe path and we don't make any room for the part that is our dream. Some of some people, you do a good job of that, congratulations. But most of us are so all in on making our lives safe, making them certain, that we're not doing personal real options, including our dream in it. And I would say the reason why we need to go after our dreams is because there's so much fuel inside of each human being for their dreams. Otherwise, we're doing stuff like, wait, how do I do it? You know, it's almost like you need a script because it's like your heart's not in it. And so for kids or parents, when we do our dreams, it is intuitive. It is, it's like we have rocket fuel because it's going to, it's going to keep regenerating because it's what we care about. And you can't really force someone to care about stuff they don't care about. And I was, I just was thinking about the Mary Oliver poem, the wild geese one. Do you know that? Where she's like, you don't have to be good. I actually looked it up. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And it goes on. It's a beautiful poem called Wild Geese. But the idea is the, the things that we love, if we unleash, unlock and, act, and activate what we already love, then we're, the world would be totally a different place because we'd all be doing our dream. And by dream, we don't mean like, woohoo, you're on vacation all the time. I mean, that's not actually what brings people you know, again, purpose is what gives people the sense of well-being. We can't just do vacation and people, all the time. People have to do jobs. I mean, Roald Dahl, this famous you know author, wrote about becoming an, an author. And he said most writers worked jobs while they wrote until you know their career took off. So, I mean, we're not ignorant of these realities, but I think you've got to be making time for that in your life, or slowly you're. Does. Right. But yeah. I guess what I'm saying is our dreams are going to be more robust than just frivolous, luxurious things. Our real dreams actually do have a purpose that would serve the world. So I'm kind of talking about dreams in a different way, I guess. And I think, but we're all on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're all on the same page and, and, and well said. Uh, Nathan, Susanna, thank you so much. It's been so fun. Yeah, Thanks thank for you. your great questions.